Greetings, I'm Casey Cook, and this is the FCCMA Podcast, a service produced by and for the Florida City and County Management Association. I'm your guest host today, and as you know, each episode we interview a city or a county leader or a special guest who's in a position to share interesting and useful insights into the operations of local government here in the Sunshine State. Let's get right into it. Our guest today, the man, the myth, the legend, Steve Vancor, <laughs> the usual host. You did a really good job with the intro there, Case. Thanks. I, you know, I, I need a little work, but I'll get there over time. Uh, but Steve, I'm super excited to have you on today. We, As you know, in my life, I went through uh, an obsession almost with financial independence and, and was recommended books like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, uh, The Millionaire Mind. And one of those, I believe, that you recommended to me. One of my favorites. The Millionaire next door. And for those in the audience that aren't familiar with that book, essentially Tom Stanley, the author, surveyed a thousand millionaires and he wanted to know what makes them tick, what are their buying habits, uh, how do they look at life. And I think we're doing a mini Millionaire Next Door episode today where we're peeking into the minds of managers because you have an interesting perspective. You spent the last 15 months as we've gone through this podcast journey interviewing CEOs, uh, city and county leaders across the state of Florida, and we get to see what you've learned in that 15 months. And so I'm super excited to have you. Well, I'm, I'm excited to do this too, Casey, because as you know, in listening to the podcast, th- these things keep like squeaking out, right? I'll be interviewing somebody and I'll go, oh yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly what I'm seeing with all these city managers is the following things. And by the way, I love the book too. And for those audience members who have it, it's an oldie, but a goodie. It talks about living below your means, uh, letting things, you know, having a good value, understanding of money, getting rid of debt, not living into the future with your money, but living in the past and, and getting rid of that debt. It's a fantastic book and it's a real game changer. And then you find after adhering to it for five, six, seven years, you're a lot more financially comfortable than you otherwise would have been because you're not paying somebody a lot of interest and all that kind of stuff. So good book, good, good reference. Good. And I'm glad you weren't making any sort of political statement there, Steve. <laughs> uh, no. And I think if I'm, I'm flashing back to when we had lunch and I said, Steve, I have a crazy idea. I want to, I want FCCMA to create a podcast. What do you think? And over the course of that lunch, we kind of talked this out and talked, you know, what this would look like. And we both agreed that, look, there's some general uh, preconceived notions that the public has of government and specifically city and county managers. And so I'm going to, I've made my list and I'm going to throw them out. All right. And I want you to agree, disagree, generally react to them. Sure. And so yeah, item one on my list was all city and county managers have taken the same road. You know, I, when coming into this case and I've been around, been, been engaged with the league of cities, I guess we're going on about 15 years uh, spent much of my career in politics and uh, public communications. And so really thought, wrongly, thought that I knew a lot about city government and learned so much more. And one of those things was the assumption, because I remember you saying to me about their career path. And I was like, well, this is going to be boring. They were all going to have a bachelor's degree in political science and then probably earned a master's while working for a local government and then just moved up the chain of command. And, and, and that is just wrong. Now, certainly there are those who did, and that's great. But so many city managers come to the table, and we're talking county administrators, city managers, assistant city managers, and, and you know deputy city managers who who we interview, right? That that top tier in local government, and many of them have had successful careers already, 
And for one happenstance reason or another, we're lured into this business. And we'll talk about what are those things that lured them in. But you have everything from Jamie Titcom was a successful advertising executive, got involved in the planning council, I believe, as it were. And the next thing you know, there was an opening. It's like, no, I, I not only can I do that, I need to do that. Um, the gentleman who just left uh, Clearwater, uh, it was a Bill Horn, I think his name was, 20 years successful career in the military, thought, yeah, I'll do this as a short stint, ends up staying as a city manager of the city of Clearwater for 20 years. And so you have people who had otherwise successful, rewarding lives who then somehow made this like hard turn and said, wow, I can do that. And that would be a really rewarding thing to do and found, I think, great reward from that. So I'm going to take that that's a false in the answer of my preconceived notion. Um, (laughs) Well, it was our joint preconceived. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I I think the second one is, you know, these folks are sitting at the top of their org charts, right? They're sitting in the big chair on the hot seat. Uh, They wanted that for financial reasons, right? They're all financially motivated, true or false. Oh, man, nothing could be further from the truth, right? Because first of all, you know, one th- on one hand, if you were running a billion-dollar corporation, if you were running a $300 million corporation, you would be making far, far more money than you would make as a city manager. And, the yeah, they're sitting in the big chair. They're conducting these, you know, every week or every other week or whatever the, the, the time period is. They're, you know, right next to the mayor or whatever, making and being partaking in large-scale important decisions there's not a big financial reward that comes with it. They're not poorly compensated, but they're not compensated relative to the level of responsibility, the level of impact they have in their community in particular, and the, the amount of time, energy, and effort it takes. You know, the other thing about city you always have to be on. You can't have an off day because if you have an off day, a lot of bad things can happen. And so I think that motivates them uh, very much so. But it's certainly not financial reward. Well, like, listen, they're not they're not, you know, standing in the bread line. But, you know, you have uh, people who run city utilities who could go run a private utility. We had it here in our town. The guy left eventually and quadrupled his pay. And so there's got to be something else that drives them to stay and to succeed. And I think if, so I just want to paint this picture. If I'm the CEO of a company that makes plastic cups, I have to be an expert in all things plastic cups, right? I have to understand the equipment. I got to understand distribution. I have to understand who's buying my plastic cups. Now imagine a city or a county as 16 different businesses because they own golf courses and they own airports. They have a public works department where they're paving roads. They're, they're running a water company, an electric company, potentially. Now you as the manager, you have to be an expert in a lot of those different subject areas and not just in plastic. Cups. One of my favorite things to do is to go to lunch with or to have sit next to a dinner with a city or a county uh, manager, administrator. And you watch the fluidity by which they go from water management cycles to road repair to uh, disaster relief to managing FEMA to HR issues to, you know, other employment issues. And through all that, through all of that, a kind of the meta of managing their councils, right? You also have to be 
you know, have to have not just a high EQ and a high IQ, right? Because you got to understand the personalities of the commission that you report to. And then you got to turn around and go back to your office and you have to be, you're right. You have to understand finance. You have to understand all these different things. And I think that's why you have such a diversity of people coming from different areas because you can't be a city manager and be just an expert in one area. You have to be a jack of all trades, and, and be smart enough to understand, because especially if you run a big city, a bus service, for example, and bus routing is a big deal. You can you can lose a lot of money or save a lot of money by how the experts come in. So you've got to listen to these experts. And at the end of the day, you've got to turn around and make a recommendation to your city council. That's the right one. And so if you came to the table as a water expert or as an electrical electrical expert, but don't know don't, diddly about buses, uh, but now you do. You have to be smart on that thing. And, I, and by the way, I don't see that as a negative. I think that's one of the common elements of why city managers, county administrators love their jobs because you're const- your brain is constantly being challenged. You're constantly being you know, taught new things. And you know, the moment you learn it, that's no longer relevant. You got to learn something else. I think that's part of the reward of, of being a city, a city manager. Yeah, and I think they're... Uh Every day they're facing complex problems that they have to solve. And so it's not boring. It's not making the plastic cup where as long as the machine's running and the assembly line's good to go, our cups are going to get out. This is a new challenge every day. And so it's, it's, all right, what fire am I going to put out today? And I think there is some sort of excitement to that element of the job. And when it's literally a fire. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So the next one I had was, uh, you know, there's lots of churn in this profession. What's what's going on here? You know, why why would you take on a a high stakes position where the average lifespan is three to five years? I mean, what? Why would somebody put themselves and their family through that? What do you think that's about? Well, I, I think let me let me. There's two parts to this question, and let me answer the that, that part first, which is why would somebody do that? Um, and I think it goes to what we were just talking about the job is a, a challenging job and challenging in, in a way that you can really make a positive difference um, in people's lives. Uh, you know, when I do something good for a client of mine, um, you know, I'm, I'm rewarded by that, right? But when you're um, Matt Spore, let's take, who helped rebuild Safety Harbor from kind of the sleepy hamlet with not a lot going on. They had a, a dying resort there which with a lot of land. They bought the land. They guaranteed to use the money to rebuild the downtown resort, and that led to economic redevelopment. They did a CRA, kept the money all in there, negotiated with Pinellas County. And by the way, I've been there twice since the interview, because I, and I went once. Oh, I'm going to check this out. I biked across the Courtney Campbell and went up to Safety Harbor. I'm like, this place is cool, and I went back, right? So that every day when he goes to work, it's like, you know, I had something to do with whoever idea it was to rebuild Cascades Park, which was a brownfield at the time in Leon County. What a reward. When you see the families there, you said you went to a concert this weekend. What a joy in your heart to say, I helped do that. I remember, I know he wasn't the city manager, but the mayor of, um, former mayor of Tampa, my friend Bob Buckhorn, really good guy, right? Was like, I'm going to bring the medical school downtown. We're going to finish rebuilding this or building this downtown, a walk along the river. Uh, it spurred 
literally almost a trillion dollars in economic development. Now you go to downtown Tampa, it's beautiful. There's kids everywhere. People are walking. Families are outside. You got the, uh, the hockey uh, stadium right there. Um, and, and if you're Bob or whoever the county, I don't know who the county administrator, city manager was at the time, because it had to be all of them, the county and the city. Uh, you got to feel like I had something to do with this. So, Casey, the direct answer to your question is, I think that reward of really making a difference in people's lives, even if it's something like, you know, you read stories about literal poop rolling down the the streets um, and you put a sewer system in and a water management system in to protect against that. I know that's kind of the opposite of the spectrum, but that reward uh, I think is what is what makes the job all the downsides worth it. So let me go back to one of the other downsides. You didn't ask this question, but it's important to me. When you first told me about this group called Managers in Transition, I think we interviewed somebody about it. I'm like, what the heck is that? Oh, that's people who got fired. I really didn't understand what that meant. And as a city manager, county administrator, assistant city manager. It comes with the territory, pardon the sports analogy, but like being an NFL coach. Sometimes you just get fired because people just want to change. It had nothing to do with what you did, right or wrong. And as we learned in the interview with Doug Logan, who was your uh, FCC annual conference uh, keynote speaker, you can build a successful career based on a lot of failures. And those failures doesn't mean you're a failure. It means the ideas weren't accepted or didn't work out, but you learned something from it. And took it with you to the next job. So you may have started at, you know, uh, city manager of Wellington, assistant city manager, a new council comes in and they want to make wholesale change. And you did nothing wrong. And so this managers in transition program is phenomenal with the mentorship program, helping people make sure they understand first and foremost, you're, you're being asked to leave had nothing to do with, with your job. You just got caught on the wrong side of a commission who may or may not have wanted you there. Not because of what you did. They may have seen you as, oh, you were close to the old mayor. We got a new mayor, so we're going to make a change. And so what you see a lot of these managers are almost like military. They move from base to base to base and end up building these really successful careers based on that. So, yeah, it's a it's a really interesting thing because, you know, one of the things Doug said was when you sign up to be a city manager, it's a lot like signing your own death warrant. I don't agree with that because you do have a lot of folks in there for a long period of time. But unlike a death warrant, you end up having an opportunity to do really cool things. I mean, real quick, the exception to the rule, Nick Mims, uh, city manager, Fort Pierce, really good guy. He's been there 25 years, not a city manager, but he's been in the city for 25 years. So there is some longevity in there, but it's a risk that outside of your control, Somebody could come in and go, yeah, we want new leadership and you got to go. And I, yeah, and I think that specifically to the MIT portion, I think that's been one of the coolest things that I've seen since I've gotten involved in FCCMA five or six years ago is that this is a fraternal organization. You know, nobody understands what you're going through better than somebody that holds the job in a different city. Every year I travel out to the ICMA conference and I look forward to it because there's a meeting of uh, state directors of all of the city and county manager associations. And that's the only time of the year that I get to be around my peers, talk through their ideas. They get to hear some of mine and you're around people that understand. And I think FCCMA provides that forum for you to connect with your peers even if it's just to say, man, I had to deal with, I, you know, our commission meeting went to 2.30 last night. 
this was it, we're going through a rocky road. You know, we have an election upcoming. There is a natural connection in this association. And when you encounter a challenge or, you know, are, are switching your career, not necessarily career, but job, leaving a city, leaving a county, looking for your next opportunity. Many times the FCCMA member is the first one to step in to offer that lifeline to help. That's exactly right. And and, and it's not just, it's networking, it's understanding, it's counseling, it's mentoring. Uh, and because what's, what's interesting, this goes to the whole idea of public service and what drives these folks is desire to do good. We haven't talked about desire to do good and get no recognition for it, right? Only blame if it goes bad. But serving in that capacity, no one's paying them extra to serve on the MIT committees. No one's uh, paying them extra to mentor other city managers. Why do they do it? What's the drive? The drive is I want to serve. I want to be a part of something that makes the world a better place for people. And we, you know, we talk about it all the time to the point where it's almost cliche. The government closest to the people, the one that makes the most difference. But here you have the literal physical embodiment of that sentiment captured in those who serve in, in upper management and in management. Uh, and I'm sure at all levels, I just I haven't interviewed a bunch of firefighters, a bunch of cops, a bunch of, you know, uh, clerical workers. But these city managers and county administrators and, and everybody in that strata really feel strongly about the goodness that they bring to the world. And I think another example, and I know you've, I'm bringing it up because I know you've interviewed a couple of them, but we have a senior advisor program and we have eight senior advisors, all retired managers. So they've worked 30, 40 years in the profession. If I'd worked 40 years, I'd want to enjoy my retirement, but these people care enough about it where they devote 20, 40, 60 hours a month to be a resource for currently working FCCMA members. So if you're going through a challenging scenario or issue at your city, you have an expert or experts to call and you can pick their brain. You know, wearing my other hat at the League of Cities, it would be nice to have eight people who've been a legislative director for 40 years that understand the Florida legislature that I can call them and say, hey, have you ever encountered this before? Because I think so much of this is learning from your failure before it becomes my failure. And if, if there's a pothole that I'm about to step into and yep. you can help me avoid that by tr passing on some of your wisdom, I want to know that. And I think that's just this tremendous program that we have. And it speaks to the public servants in this profession and those that are doing it not for financial gain, but because they care about the profession and they care about local governments and where they're heading in the future. And, and, and not just the governments themselves, but what governments can do. Let's see, a great example would be Joe Yarborough, former city manager of um, South Daytona. And uh, Joe retired. Uh, but Joe, before he left for like several decades, was the, uh, was the president of the City Managers Association of Volusia County, which has 17 municipalities on it. They talk about herding cats. And Joe spent extra time to do that. No benefit to him, no benefit, real benefit to South Daytona, except he knew he was helping his fellow comrades in arms, as it were. And he retires, uh, starts a hemp farm in Alabama. Right. And what is he doing now? He's mentoring other city managers and, and Michael Ployce, who's taken his job as city manager of Deland. Um, so they've, they've deployed Joe back in to help out with other stuff. Again, pure service, pure. I want to give back. I want to do something. I want to make a difference in these communities. And that, that's what it, it's not just 
oh, local government, just they believe in government. They believe in the good things that government can do to help people. Um, one example that keeps coming to mind is um, the city manager of Oakland Park. Oakland Park has a very uh, economically destitute area, and they've got a plan to move infrastructure and other aspects to use the city's resources to help stop poverty. That's not something you think about. You think of stopping poverty, you know, groups like Feeding Florida and, and the, you know, the Emmys and the CBCs helping people through crises, you know, whatever those things are. But you never think about, well, better sidewalks and better infrastructure and better water management, getting rid of the flooding that will bring in jobs. And I, I could do all these things. I can move uh, a police station or a city hall nearby them and make a real difference in people's lives. There's a real commitment there and then a real commitment to see it through, which is which is really kind of inspiring. And I think you touched on something, and so I'm going to jump back to an earlier sure. answer, but tie it in. Um, you know, one of the, the when we were sitting down making our joke list, or I was making my joke list, um, an assumption was these are all really important people. They have high-profile jobs. Naturally, they must have pretty big egos. And I think through my dealings with FCCMA, and um, I want to hear your thoughts on this, uh, it couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, would you have any reaction to that? <laughs> so, so you know, uh, I'll, I'll say I think the egos run the gamut. However, what does not run the gamut is in order to succeed in this business, in these jobs, and we've learned this watching them, is if you have a big ego, you better check it at the door because the ribbon cutting and the photo up and the glamour goes to the mayor, goes to the commission, not you. And, the, and what we, what they, the common element they've told me is the moment you see a city manager start being the ribbon cutting person, doing the keynote speech, that's usually the beginning of the end. Once the county administrator, I'm, 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 I won't name any names here, but I, I worked on a, a sales tax referendum in a county and we passed it against all odds. Everybody was polling poorly, but we all hands on deck. The city, the county administrator in this case did a great job. Okay. And afterwards, I read two months later, they fired him. I was like, why would they fire him? Well, what happened was because he did that, he felt empowered. He felt really strong, started giving these speeches, started doing these interviews with the press. And they, somebody, one of the commissioners who was a friend of mine, I called him and said, what happened? He said, man, he got too big for his britches. And, and so whether you have a big ego or not, what I find is professionally, these folks check that at the door and are willing to say, I'm going to do good things but I'm not going to get the credit for it. I'm going to make sure my mayor gets the credit, that the ribbon cutting goes to that person, the success of this program goes to them. And guess what? Conversely, if things are screwed up, it's never the elected's fault. It's always the city manager's fault because they're, they're the pivot point, right? You want the commission to get the positive credit, you know, because after all, they do deserve it. They are serving and they are making policy decisions and allowing you to do these things. Conversely, downstream, you've got to protect your staff. Because you, they are in it for a very similar reason. You can't pay people. You can't turn around and say, hey, Case, you've been doing a great job as an analyst three uh, working for the utility. I'm going to give you a 20% raise. You just don't have that flexibility. You know, you can promote people, right? But what do you, what do you have? You protect them. You cover their backs. You give them good assignments. And then you bring them to the ribbon cutting ceremony. You pull them aside and you say, uh, this new park that we're opening Thank you so much for your hard work. You had a lot to do with this. When you go home, tell your family that that park should have been named after you. So you're you're that pivot point. You got to make sure the credit goes upstream, and when the blame is coming back 
for things that go wrong, it's got to stop. That buck's got to stop on your desk. And you can't say, well, the assistant, blah, 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 was in charge of that. No, no. You get all the blame and none of the glory. It, you know, I, I, the picture I have in my mind is Bill Belichick, right? The NFL head coach. Because when the conversation starts turning to the head coach and not to the players on the field, that's when there's an issue, right? I compared earlier to an umpire when, you know, the umpire's best day is when they're never noticed. And it's their worst day when they are called out. They become the conversation. The camera pans to the umpire, right? And they they blew that call. Um, The head coach doesn't, they they may wear a uniform in some sports. They may wear a sport coat in others. Um, But, (laughs) you know, they don't impact the game. They may call plays, send plays in, but they are not directly tied to the outcome of that game. And so anytime the conversation steers away from the star player to the head coach, you know, that's the worst day in a head coach's life. And and it speaks to both sides of it. You win the championship and the the coach, uh, all of the glowing articles about the coach to the example you cited earlier, uh, or you go through the seven game losing streak. All of the articles are about the coach and it's not a good situation. Why do they make that bad call? Exactly. Like, that, like the whole game turned on that one bad call, right? Yeah. You didn't, you didn't do the scouting. You know? So, you know, you know what makes me crazy? I, and, and I, yeah, and I came to this late when I see a city council or a county administration, they've got people in their organization who are already there, know the community, have worked their tails off, have dedicated their thing, know what's going on, have worked their way through the channel. And then somebody says, well, in order to, in order to find the best city manager or county, we need to do a national search. That makes me nuts because where's the loyalty? Where's the, where's the incentive to, for me as a, as a mid-level employee to bust my tail, to rise up? Uh, listen, to all those city managers who got hired because they did a national search, please forgive me on this. But I do think the default should be, do we have anybody already in our shop that's doing a hell of a good job that already knows the, the story about that resort, the story about the flooding, the story about the sewer system, the story, whatever those things are, so that we can promote from within because there's no better, there are few better incentives than knowing someday I might get that promotion and to be told I've been toiling, I've been working hard, I, I help make that happen because under the city manager are their implementers, right? Especially in larger cities. And for those implementers who've been doing the hard work and getting things done to be passed over for some generic sound good soundbite, which is we should do a national search to find the very best, which we know in the interview process, you really can't tell how good somebody is. So uh, it's I know it's a sidebar to your question, but for those city managers who are working really hard, they deserve that, that loyalty from the commissions. Well, and I think it's a great segue into the next kind of question that I had for you. Um, if there's a talent pipeline in place, and you're providing the professional development opportunities for younger employees, allowing them to grow, there will be somebody there when there's a retirement or when somebody takes another job and leaves the organization. Uh, it doesn't always translate all the way up, but I, you know, I'm curious to get your thoughts and, and maybe it's come up in interviews of you know, the, the graying of the profession. Mm-hmm. There's this silver tsunami, you know, what, what makes you hopeful about local government specifically, you know, how 
are we doing an adequate job filling that talent pipeline or identifying and drawing in people to the profession? Are there areas of opportunity? You know, what do you think about that? So several things. One, um, we're, we're, I'm a little pessimistic. I'll talk about the first my pessimistic view and then the optimistic view is what's happening on commissions, councils, is what, a lot of what we're seeing on school boards now, where it used to be that and I'm not that guy. The, the old days are the good old days. I, that's just not my thing. I think there's a lot of positive things coming down the pipe. But it used to be people came to the city council because they served on the EDC. They served on a planning commission. They were very active in their local chamber. And so by the time they decided to run for office, they understood how government worked and how local government worked and what the charge of local government is, which is a lot of times it's really boring stuff, Case, I mean, you're right. We don't really get to hear about the city manager when a storm comes through and the next day the lights are on and the trees are picked up. Nobody says, oh, gee, thank you, city manager. But gosh darn it, if if there's trees down on the road and the lights are working, we're like, my damn city, they, 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 the lights don't come on, you're mad, right? And so what's happening is, we used to have people came up through that pipeline. Now people are coming into politics because we're fed through social media, through uh, political news channels. I mean, you have, whether it's MSNBC and to some degree CNN and, and Fox, they think that's what makes local government work. Local government can be very, how, how do we get flooding out of people's yards? How do we stop the pollution in those lakes? How do we get rid of the algae and the holding bonds? How do we make sure the traffic's work, working, traffic lights are working on time, that the fire service is being delivered to the people it needs to be delivered on? And it's not about this hyper-partisan rancor that you see that people are coming to city councils. And I worry for my cities because of the good things they do that the people coming into city government are more interested in partisan fighting than they are in, in when that switch goes up, the light goes on, when, I, when the toilet crank tr- turns, that water goes away, right? Those are the things that are important in government, not some of this, this, this rancor we see today. So in that regard, I'm, I'm pessimistic. Where I'm optimistic, Casey, is the fact that if we had a pipeline, like you and I had said we, we originally assumed, like in, in the medical profession, for example, if there's a shortage of anesthesiologists, right, physician anesthesiologists, um, you've got to go back to the medical schools and you've got to say, we need more anesthesiology programs. We need more residency programs. We've got to raise the rates here. And so you have an eight to 10 year pipeline to build people in. So you can predict, but if there's a problem, you, you don't have alternatives. You can't say, oh, hey, Casey, you want to be an anesthesiologist? How about putting people in a medically induced coma? No, no, thanks, right? Uh, the good news for cities are what we talked about at the onset, which is there are people in other professions who are drawn to this profession because of the really cool things you can do, the interesting challenges, the diversity in your mind. It's not a boring job. You're not uh, the plastic stock is up or down. I've got my you know outlets, blah, 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 to use your you know plastic cup analogy. Every day is a different day. Every day is a different challenge. And when you meet those challenges, you really make a difference in people's lives. And so I, I'm optimistic that as the profession grays, that you'll see other people say, you know, uh, that's something I want to do. And I, I want to leave you with one other point. One of the things you hear from millennials, post-millennials, right, those people are really entering the meat of the workforce now is a desire to work in something that's rewarding, okay? Um, 
I can't think of a better group of people to be motivated to come into this form of government because, or this, this type of career because, you know, my son, he's, he's uh, just graduated with his master's degree in electronic dance music production of all things, right? And he said, you know, I, I don't know if I want to do that because I want something that's really rewarding and I'm getting a little tired of this. Uh, and, you, you know, you hear this a lot from young kids. I want something that, that challenges me and that's rewarding. And I would say to every one of them, and I think that's something we've got to focus on, which is to say, hey, you, all you folks out there, look over here. It doesn't have to be a master's in public administration. While that certainly helps, the challenges and the opportunities of working in local government, especially in management, is very, very rewarding. And, I, and one of the things I do like about this generation, while everybody wants to make a higher salary than they're making, just, be, you know, if you're going to give me more money, I'll take it. That doesn't seem to be their primary motivation. Their primary motivation seems to be self-fulfillment, self to do something that matters. And I can't think of anything more that matters than, than when you have flooding neighborhoods in Fort Lauderdale, you put in all those valves in the canals. Next thing you know, people are able to walk their dog without galoshes on. So a, a couple comments there. First, I fixed my boat motor by watching YouTube on Saturday. Mm -hmm. So I'm confident that I could be an anesthesiologist in the next six months. <laughs> uh, but specifically on, um, you know, the, how rewarding working in local government can be. You know, Mike Siddig once said to me, if you want to help 100 people in the city, go work for a nonprofit. If you want to help everybody in the city, go work for the local government, whether it's the city right. or the county. And our challenge is delivering that message to students and letting them know that there's meaningful work at local, you know, whether it's in a city or in a county, there's tons of career opportunities with some short-term upside. You know, as you see members, more and more members retiring, that's only creating opportunities. And so you're increasing your sphere of influence or your ability to make a positive impact on your entire community. So think, I think of two examples. Um, Lauren Gill was the manager of, city manager of Paradise, California. We interviewed her on the show and wherever she is today, she knows there's probably a hundred people who have a life because of the work she did. Uh, that fire came raging over the hill. She showed up at the emergency department, emergency operations center, and there was nobody there. And I said, well, what, what, did you panic? Did you freak out? What the heck? She goes, no, we had been trained so well and so often. I knew that everybody was at their post. Everybody was doing their thing. And, and because of her pre-training that she did, many, many lives, untold lives were saved as a direct. How rewarding is that? You know, I helped pass a bill to increase nursing home standards in early 2000, worked really hard on it. It was my idea. I passed it. And I sometimes go, people go, what was the best support? Well, frankly, I think I saved a bunch of lives. People I will never meet, would never know about their personal stories, but knowing that the number of accidental deaths, bed sores declined in Florida nursing homes as a result of the work you did. That's something that sticks with you forever. And let me, I said there's two examples. Let me give you another example. When we were at the conference, the FCCMA conference of Cocoa Beach, there was a built-in gap of 20 minutes to go out to the beach and watch one of the SpaceX rockets take off. And I've known the county administrator for St. Lucie County, Howard Tipton, friend of the family, because Lynn is her sister, is Lynn's, is Lynn Tipton with the League of Cities is Howard's sister. I guess that public services in their, in, in their veins, right? Howard told me a story the other day. I couldn't believe it. And goes to the point of, 
not taking the credit, not you know jumping up and down. I've known Howard probably more than a decade. We've had many conversations. And we were talking about he was the county administrator in Brevard County in 2008, 2009, 2010. After the economic collapse, their revenues the next year, as everybody on this podcast knows, went down, 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 down. They had to make difficult decisions, cut library services, cut fire services, cut road building, cut all these things. Howard said, I looked at that chart. I was sick to my stomach, all these cuts we had to make. But I looked at one light item and I said, economic development. I'm going to increase, I think he said 50%, by a dramatic increase, not to keep it the same. That wouldn't have been bold, to increase it. As a result of that, he went and they met with a little-known company with a little-known CEO by the name of Elon Musk and a little-known company called SpaceX. And they went and they pitched them not to go to Houston, not to go to, I think it was a closing uh, military base in Virginia, and lured them to Brevard. So every time one of those rockets goes off, a little bit of Howard has to be, dude, I made that. I helped make that happen. I wasn't the only one. It was a team. But that decision in my room when I said to my staff, we can't cut that budget. We, need, we can't have a downward slide. We have to find a way to go up and recover from this economic uh, uh, depression or recession, the Great Recession, as it was called. Those kind of things, whether it's saving lives or building a new space industry, it's got to be something that drives people because at the end of your career, you get to sit back and go, yeah, that rocket, maybe they're going to name the next one the Tipton, you know? I don't know. Uh, but I think that's got to be the kind of thing that would lure younger folks into the profession. Yeah, just this the, the appeal of I'm making decisions today that are going to out, outlive my time in this organization, maybe even my time in this community. You look at Clayman Plaza downtown. Dan Clayman, you know, is a legend in the game, but he hasn't been city manager of Tallahassee for uh, a while. And right. now Clayman Plaza is a gem of downtown Tallahassee. I say that selfishly because the league office building is there, but that was his vision along with the elected leadership in the city of Tallahassee, and it happened after his time. That's and, right. And the continued development of Clayman. That, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So, yeah. The, 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 and, you know, it's, it speaks to the same thing about the not willing to get credit. You can start projects that you never see the finish of. And Dan was part of the team that began the beginning. They began to say, we've got this brownfield right in the heart of downtown. That's an EPA Superfund site. Uh, let's begin the process of removing, I think they removed 20,000 truckloads of, of polluted dirt. Yeah, there's a dry cleaner there. A dry cleaner. And when the city utility was there, and they went back in the day when you yep. just, hey, there's a little creek here. We can dump oil down it. You know, and uh, it was so heavily polluted. They cleaned it all up, and now it's a beautiful park yep. and a water treatment facility. <laughs> so I want to transition a little bit, and, and I don't know that uh, fire round is the appropriate term, but I'm just going to shoot some questions to you. Short answers, you know, I want to go through some of the highlights if there are some people that um, really maybe you weren't expecting in a good way. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, if, if you're good with it, I'm going to ask the first question. You know, over the last 60-some episodes, does anyone stand out as far as, you know, some of the more enlightening interviews or folks that maybe changed your perspective? Oh, yeah. Um, boy, there's so many because uh, Lauren Gill, I, I just couldn't believe what she was speaking. The, the, you know, the whole story of Paradise is an incredible story. Uh, Doug Logan, I've mentioned him twice already. Um, you know, Desiree Casanova is a young woman, and I remember Casey. And Desiree, if you're listening, 
um, when you first gave me the resume and you were like, "This, she's an amazing young kid. I was like, Casey, she's not even employed. I mean, why? this is supposed to be like the, the managers teaching other managers. I was riveted. Um, I fell in love with her, just like her enthusiasm, her desire to serve, her insights for somebody, you know, my business is older than her, okay? Uh, that was a very, very big surprise. Another one was a personal thing to mine. I, I got to know Sheila Rose, who's the assistant city manager of Coconut Creek. As you know, I spent a lot of time in Coconut Creek, and I love it. And, and what she told me was they went on a land-buying spree with intent, and she was in charge of that because the county had all these grants, and they, they made a conscious decision to buy as much uh, sensitive land. They were, they were very close to the Everglades uh, in Broward County and to make it an environmental jewel. And while other cities might say, well, let's take that land and put a warehouse on it so we get tax revenue, some visionary in, in the city of Coconut Creek, and Sheila got to be the one to implement this, said, when we have a new development, we're going to make sure they preserve good land. They put a lot of trees. The sidewalks uh, weave like a creek. And when you drive and you go under, you know, on uh, uh, like Copens Road and you're going west and you go under the turnpike, the temperature drops, the number of trees, the sidewalks, the parks, the people outside enjoying it. And, and, and having known Sheila and then interviewing, I'm like, this woman is amazing. This is fantastic. I didn't know all these things. So that was that was a kind of surprise. And I also talk about Safety Harbor, uh, you know, one of my new favorite little cities uh, to go to. Uh, so, I, you know, th- those were a surprise to me, and I, and I really enjoyed those. And Matt Spoor, if you're listening, I'll take that check whenever you get a chance, because we've given you a handful of shout outs today uh, with the plug for Safety Harbor. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Well, and you know, another one that was really cool was uh, uh, the new um, the guy took over after Ke- uh, Jared Moskowitz, Kevin Guthrie, who was there and really was the right hand to Jared. Kevin Guthrie is a phenomenal, and he gave you know, as Casey, you and I have talked about this. You know, you were talking about make it a little more personal. They really like each other. They know each other. That network is important. I'm like, no, it needs to be educational. Well, Kevin, you know, really gave solid advice on what to do before a storm, what to do during a storm, and what to do after a storm. And that advice alone could make the difference for any city or county tens of millions of dollars. To give you one example that really stuck out. He said, during, I said, well, what can you do during a storm? He goes, immediately after the storm, here's what happens. The, the debris removal company that you hired, whether it's in-house or a contract, they line up on a street. And you got to train them and you got to be there and be mindful that where are you going to put the debris? You have to make a decision right there, right then on the right side of the street or the left side of the street. And by simply making sure you make the right decision, not on the side with the fire hydrants, not on the side with the telephone poles, that alone could save the city tens of thousands of dollars on just one little street in debris removal costs. I'm like, oh, my God, how does not everybody know this? Right. And he had probably 30 of those. And I'd like to also say former FCCMA member. So it speaks to the value of having a practitioner. You know, he was an emergency manager, I think a deputy county manager, assistant county manager uh, involved in FCCMA. It speaks to the value of having a practitioner at the state level that understands the operation side of local government. And so uh, I agree with you. I've been incredibly impressed with Kevin. Yeah, he's a good dude. 
All right. What about the hometown boy? Reese Goad, was, was, was there anything personally impacting about, you know, interviewing him? It's got to be pretty cool. You work, you know, work and live in this city you have. What'd you, what were your takeaways? You know, what's Reese's funny interview? about that is Reese comes across as this kind of aw shucks kind of guy, kind of easygoing. That guy is brilliant and is saving the city of Tallahassee millions of dollars. You talk about underappreciated. His understanding of finance and using his understanding of finance to put people in place in the utility and other areas to use the revenue that's generated in the city of Tallahassee. And city of Tallahassee is unusual in the state of Florida for several reasons. One reason is most of the land is, is you know, people don't realize Western Leon County is the Apalachicola National Forest. The biggest, you know, landowners in town don't pay property taxes. They're the state government. Many people may have known that, that the city of Tallahassee is our state capital. Um, the, you know, but with it, between all the courts and all the collateral buildings, that's a lot of land that's not on the payroll uh, for the city. And then we got uh, a major university in Florida State, a fantastically large community college in TCC, and you have FAMU here as well, also a large land grant. And so Reese's understanding of the utility, because he came through finance and the utilities, and how to leverage that money to make life better in the city of Tallahassee, fantastic. And so seeing him, I've only seen him in you know casual mode. How you doing, Reese? He's always got some interesting, cool idea. And then listening to him would get real professional. That was that was really cool. Cool. Well, that was my last question, but I want to provide some time. You know. Is there anything we haven't covered that you wanted to talk about or anything uh, specifically that maybe you ha- I hadn't asked you a question? Um, anything else you want to add? Um, you know, one of the things that does shine through is, you know, it's funny when you watch, like, let's say the NFL draft. OK, and I've, I've, been, I've never actually purposely turned it on. But whenever I go to my brother's house, I've, for some odd reason, I've been over there when there's been maybe it's around somebody's birthday. I don't, couldn't even tell you what month it is. Right. And when you see some guy who's played for the University of California, Florida State, whatever, and then they get picked by a team and they immediately put the jersey up, right? It's like kind of a good thing. Oh, yeah, I'm happy to be an Eagle. This is so awesome. I love the Eagles. Really? You don't even know what city they're really in, you know? And, and, and one thing about city managers, and I say this both tongue in cheek and very admirably, they love their cities. And they, they are so committed I, I met uh, a former city manager who's now taken on a different job. He was working at a city. I won't, I won't name him because it was kind of a sad meeting. They, they fired him. And um, this guy loved that city. And he was so heartbroken because he was really turning the city around. And that was one of those cities, by the way, that became hyperpartisan, where they wanted the city to do Foxy News, uh, Fox Newsy and uh, MSNBC kind of stuff. And he's like, look, we're rebuilding the downtown infrastructure. We're renaming this thing. We're rebuilding the wastewater treatment plants. Try to stay awake if you're not a city manager. And, you know, all this boring stuff that was really turning that city into a jewel. I, I, I mean, and he was he was genuinely heartbroken. So one of the things we didn't talk about was their jersey on, absolute jersey on love of their of their cities. It's really kind of cool. And counties, uh, same thing. Yeah, and it's not just nine to five. It's not like you turn the brain off when you leave at, and shut the doors at five o'clock, or and turn it back on when you come in at nine o'clock the next morning. I mean, these are 
strenuous jobs, many times long hours, council yeah. meetings going into the night. You have to love your community. You have to be a public servant to be serving in that role. That's exactly right. You, It is a, once you're the city manager, I, I, I did a stint as a chief of staff for a member of Congress. I didn't realize till after I left the job, um, you're never not that person. And that wears, I mean, that's, that's, that's good or bad. It's a thing you wear all the time. Um, with a woman who's the city uh, manager of the village of golf, you know, itty bitty city, right? Christine, Christine Thor. Yeah. Yeah. And she, uh, great lady, but she said, well, she's driving down the road and somebody's trash can is, you know, turned over. She'll stop and go out and get it. That's not in her job description, but it doesn't need to be. She's going to do whatever she feels is in the best interest of the city all the time. And it's, it's kind of like the resounding thing that makes it kind of cool. Yeah, this is a great organization to be involved in, profession to be involved in. Um, and and I, I really hope you know how much I've enjoyed listening to you and hearing your interviews of guests. And I know this is a tradition, so I'm going to turn it around <laughs> on you. It's the one question you ask all of them. Tell me one cool thing about Tallahassee. Oh, Casey, what a surprise that you <laughs> asked me that question. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm an avid cyclist. And Tallahassee, after work today, uh, my girlfriend and I, we're going to leave my house, get on our bikes, and we'll bike for two hours, and we'll never be on a road. We will be on trails the whole way, beautiful trails. We will end from my house. We'll end at Lake Jackson. We're going to time it so we see the sunset over the lake, and then we will bike back through heavily wooded, beautiful areas. We will see deer. We will see all kinds of wildlife. We will see owls and all, all kinds of neat things. Uh, there's like five systems in the city or right near the city, just incredible off-road biking. I don't want to call it mountain biking because we have hills, um, but beautifully well-manicured trails. The city, um, the the county, um, we passed a one-penny sales tax and dedicated 10% of that, which is a large percentage, to, to our parks. That's why we're regularly named Best Parks in America. It seems to be this thing that nobody knows about in Tallahassee. When lawmakers come up and I'll take them out, you know, at night, they go, you well, you're riding these trails at night. And we go, yeah, man, we bring our own daytime with us. Tallahassee is a off-road biking mecca. We probably have, I mean, usable, accessible, 150 miles uh, within the county. And, we, you know, it's one city, one county within the county of incredible uh, biking trails. And they're well-maintained and, and it's all great. It's, it's from, you know, side by side, just BSing with your girlfriend on a trail to the ramps and the jumps and the, the twisty and turnies things. So it's, it's the one cool thing about Tallahassee that almost nobody knows about. Well, Steve, I've really enjoyed today's conversation. Thank you allowing for having me, to, me. <laughs> to be the guest host today. Folks, Steve Vancor, you've heard it. Uh, stay tuned for more great episodes of the FCCMA podcast. Casey Cook signing off. <laughs>